Hello and welcome to Call to Queer, where we hold space for the queer Mormon women, genderqueer, and intersex experiences. I'm Colette, and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm Kate, and my pronouns are she, they. Today, we are interviewing Lori Lee Hall, and we're so excited for this conversation. But before we jump into that, we wanted to start off by seeing what brought us queer joy this week. So Kate, what brought you queer joy this week? Okay, I'm going to cheat a little bit this week because I haven't got to talk about my experience in Spain yet, which was a few weeks ago. It wasn't this week. It was a few weeks ago. Okay, I'll allow it. Thank you. I went to Spain. Spain is just like a whole different world that I really wasn't expecting. Gay marriage was legalized in... 2005, which is a whole decade before the US. And also you can adopt kids, right? And so now those kids are much older and you walk around and you're seeing these families, whole families, queer families, ranging from everything. And it's just so normal. Oh my gosh, it felt so normal just to see people walking around with their own families. And it, and it didn't felt like, like sometimes in the US, you feel like there's a statement being made by somebody holding hands or something out of kind of defiance but this is just like no this is nobody's gonna say anything about this you know that was really cool but I went to dinner one night and I was next to four lesbian couples who all were holding hands and kissing and I was like this is mind-blowing this is just out in the open under the like the restaurants in Europe are generally outside under umbrellas and it's just like wow this is super normal. So that's my queer joy. I needed to share that. Thank you. I'm so glad you did. I remember seeing your post about it on Instagram and it made me so happy for you and a little jealous, not going to lie. <laughs> yeah, everybody should go to Spain if you can if we can figure that out. But Colette, let's, <laughs> let's hear your moment of queer joy, maybe from this week. <laughs> <laughs> it was from this week. Last night, I had a bunch of queer friends over for a party and it was just so happy. You know, it wasn't anything extremely queer about it, except for the fact that we were all queer. And it was just really fun being together and having community. And I think that's so important and partly why we started this podcast. It was really fun just to see, you know, some singles, some couples, and just see see the connection and community. That was my crew joy. Cool. They're kind of similar experiences, only in Spain, it's like a little bit more public, but definitely we had the same feeling, it feels like. Yeah, for sure. Lori Lee, do you have any queer joy that you'd want to share with us? Absolutely. As will be talked about here a little bit, I'm an architect um, by profession and training. And since I moved to Kentucky, I have um, gotten myself hired by our county government to serve as the architectural consultant to uh, Oldham County, Kentucky. And it's a conservative, upscale, mostly Republican, conservative-supporting county government that that I work with. And I had the opportunity this very week to be introduced to officials from the government of the Commonwealth of Kentucky from Frankfurt that came up and and others working on a new design for our county uh, judicial center, a new courthouse. And as a consultant to the county, I've been assisting our local people with critiquing and, and perhaps improving the design of this building. And the queer joy part is that 
I was never misgendered once. I was totally accepted as a as a professional woman and treated with uh, the utmost respect and deference. And it was as normal and appropriate and kind of uneventfully joyous <laughs> as it should as it should be as it should be and you know it's when i first considered moving to kentucky fortunately the area in which i live louisville is very queer friendly but most of kentucky would be considered not queer friendly mm-hmm. and to be able to be able to move about gracefully amongst the people here and to be fully accepted and, and to be able to make a professional contribution as well in very public situations has brought me an enormous amount of joy and, quite frankly, has confirmed why I needed to get out of Utah. Because for some reason in Utah, I'm a transgender person. And there's just a sense of scorn that goes along with that. And yet here, I don't feel like that. I feel like a woman that, you know, is a professional architect and a real estate professional and a community member and a contributor. And that's just wonderful. That's how it should be. Absolutely how it should be. And I'm so glad you were able to have that experience and be treated as who you are and not as some other. Also, we'll get into this throughout the the episode, I'm sure, but it just, it, it doesn't matter what you're doing. It seems slowly that you are like, really moving mountains, pushing boundaries, like making that space for people who come after you, but like in really public, public ways, whatever job you have, you've moved from job to job that whatever job you have, you move mountains wherever you are. And, and I'm just so grateful for you and for the people in Kentucky who get to see that as a public figurehead they get to watch that. That's super cool. You know, I recognize and I'll recognize right from the beginning that I've benefited enormously from privilege. You know, I I managed to receive my, my education and professional training and to move up through my profession, particularly in working for the church, which we'll talk about. I enjoyed white male privilege in a huge, huge way. And got me to a point when I finally did transition, which we'll talk about, I really had a lot of things going for me. And I recognize that not everyone in our community has that benefit or blessing. And I look at it as a responsibility to be public, to be vocal, to tell my story, to demonstrate that that queer people are absolutely an integral part of the the community overall, the, the contribution to our, our civic and public discussions and the work and the goodness and the service and all of that goes on, as well as having a voice. Everything I did in the past, wonderful as it was at the time, gave me a responsibility to have a voice now. Oh my goodness. I have some questions about that. That's, I will ask a little bit later. Thank you for bringing that up. I also really appreciate that all of us, our queer joy this week is celebrating sort of publicly that we get to be, it's not like an inner queer joy. It's celebrating within these larger communities. So that's, that's, that's really cool. I'm glad that that's this week's queer joy. 
Well, I think we have a lot of questions we do want to ask you, Lori, but before we start, would you mind doing just kind of a overall summary introduction? We kind of jokingly call it your queer in 60 seconds, but just an intro one to maybe five minutes to have us get to know you a little bit more before we launch into more questions. Okay, that'd be great. I was born in the early 1960s in rural Massachusetts, rural central New England, and by the time I was five, I recognized I experienced gender incongruence, how I'd term it now. Of course, in the mid and early 60s, there was really no available local information or vocabulary to describe what I was feeling. I just knew that I had been assigned uh, male at birth. It uh, didn't feel like me. I was being socialized and raised male, and I, I went along with it because that was the safe thing to do, but I knew in my heart of hearts who I was. When I was seven, my mom, for whatever reason, told me what my name was to have been had I been using our current terms assigned female at birth. And so I was told my parents had chosen the name Lori Lee Hall for me. And so I had from age seven on my name anchored to my identity. And I went through my teen years just, you know, perhaps naively hoping against hope that I would become the young woman that I felt that I was. That didn't happen. And by the time I left for college to study architecture, I decided that there was no way that I could ever be who I really felt that I was. The, the information, the language, the mental and emotional and physical health systems didn't exist, at least where I could access them. Then in the late 1970s, I went off to Rensselaer Polytechnic in upstate New York to study architecture and fully determined that I would put this whole identity of being female in a box and bury it deeply. And I was relatively good at that for a few years. And in that same time frame, I found the LDS Church and joined and had some great spiritual experiences associated with that. But I also sensed that this was an organization that was going to help me understand what it meant to be a successful adult male and do all the you know appropriate male things and perhaps save me from myself, if you will. So I did all of those things, and I, I tried in every way that I could to be the very best version of priesthood man <laughs> that I could be. I served a mission, married in the temple, had initially four children, ultimately five children, served in all the priesthood leadership callings. When I moved to Utah, I was called to be a bishop. I served five years there. I was almost nine years as a stake president. And so from that perspective, I was doing all the right things the right way. And on the other hand, whether it was when I was working as an architect in New York or once I joined church employment in Utah in 1996, there was always in my married life this undercurrent of um, what I now know to be gender dysphoria. And I would have episodes going back now 25 years ago where it was crushing and destructive to me and was a cause of loss of employment at times and cause of a lot of lost time and capability 
trying to struggle through the fact that I really, like I said to myself out loud in 1996, I just cannot do mail anymore. And after about eight weeks of recovering from that, I got busy and started doing mail again because I didn't know any alternative. And that was the case until about about 11 so years ago, once I started really researching what it meant to be transgender and the fact that there was language and a methodology and a path and emotional and mental health support and really came to realize this was a reality and I wasn't the only person on the planet who experienced this. And I wasn't even the only Latter-day Saint who experienced this. And I finally came to a point where I had spiritual confirmation of self-acceptance as to who I am, always having known kind of mentally, logically who I was, but really getting to that point, and it was in November of 2011, where I had spiritual self-acceptance that this is indeed who I am, that God knows me exactly for who he created, who they created me to be, and that they were just waiting for me to catch up and understand and accept that. So I started coming out slowly at first. Unfortunately, that got back to the general authorities of the church fairly quickly. And so by the fall of 2012, I was interviewing with several of the brethren. My position as stake president in the church was considered carefully, and I was released from that. My position at church employment was considered very carefully, and I was retained on probation with a number of restraints to my behavior. And that went on that way for four years until finally I, I pushed hard and said, I need to be able to transition, and I need to know if I can stay a church employee, consistent with the great Utah Compromise. Can I do this? I, I knew for a fact that they had created for themselves, you know, an exception to that law. But I thought, before I leave, it's worth asking that question for myself and for others that will follow. Can I remain employed? That didn't work out, so I became retired from LDS Church Employment, began living full-time at that point as Lori Lee and made all the changes necessary. Unfortunately, 2016-2017 was a very punitive time in the history of the church legally towards transgender persons, and I got caught right in the visible middle of that and was excommunicated in June of 2017 in a way that wouldn't happen today based on the way the handbook is currently written. And that was quite a shock to my system, but one that I kind of saw coming. And so I both had to recreate myself socially, civically, professionally. I had pretty much put everything that I was on the altar to be able to live authentically. And that has brought me to where I am now, where there have been indeed many losses, but also many replacement gains and and many blessings, which we can talk about. Oh my goodness. I'm trying to frantically write notes. There's so many things that I want to touch on. So, but maybe to start off, this is, I don't know if even Colette knows this about me. I worked for the church as well, but only for six months. We have a whole slew of queer church employees here. My experience was not completely tied to if I have this job, 
who am I if I lose it? Like, I think that that might be an issue for others. But for me, I was doing other things at the time. But maybe the two of you can talk a little bit more about not just having these things happen while you're a member of the church, but also employed by the church. Yeah, I can talk a little bit about my experience. And for me, as some listeners may know, I didn't realize I was queer till much later in life. Unlike Lori Lee, I was even dating a woman and I was still like, oh no, I'm totally straight. This is just a fluke. Like, I just need to cut this off, be a good Mormon. And it's fine. And it wasn't until the last few years that I realized, oh no, this is this is a thing. I'm not straight. I am attracted to women. And what does that mean? And for me, my identity was kind of tied to my occupation. And yes, I could go be a therapist anywhere, but I was good at my job. And I was doing really good things, making a great difference. And let's be honest, church employment is pretty sweet gig in some ways. At least it was for me. I was very fairly compensated, great benefits. I love the people I work with and I was good at it. And really it was hard to come to terms with the fact that ultimately I'm going to have to make the decision to choose because I didn't want to have to choose. I wanted both. I wanted to be able to date women openly and work for the church, but that wasn't possible. And so I was dating in secret off and on because I was so worried if it got back to the wrong person at work or if I had a church ecclesiastical leader, bishop, stake president that heard about it and wasn't okay with me dating, even if I was following the law of chastity, according to if I was dating a guy. And so it was just really tricky. There was a lot of tension to the point that I don't, I knew I'd feel less stress once I stopped working for the church as I put in my notice and I gave like two or three month notice to kind of build up a private caseload as I kept working for the church and have something to go to. And I knew there'd be some less stress, but I don't think how much I realized that weight was there. It was interesting. I actually went to my hairstylist a couple months after I officially was done working for the church. And she's like, have you had hair fallout? And I'm like, what? No, what are you talking about? And then she looked closer. She's like, oh no, like this is new hair growth. I'm like, how does that happen? I'm not taking any supplements. I know you can take supplements to get hair growth and everything. And she said, well, sometimes when the body suddenly has a lot less stress, more hair comes in. And I was like, that is fascinating. My body was under stress that I didn't even realize that my body stopped producing as much hair <laughs> because I was denying who I was in a way. I could not fully live as myself. And whereas now I can talk very openly about the fact, yeah, I'm gay and not be afraid of losing my job. That fear was there. And I worked for the church a lot shorter of a time than you did, Lori Lee. So I don't know what additional things you have to have and what your experience was like. I'd love to hear. So, yes, I was I was a church employee for just over 20 years. And to say that it was my identity it would be understatement, I'm afraid. I really feel like having been the chief architect for the church for several years and responsible for the design and construction of temples worldwide was like the ultimate position for an LDS architect and one that, you know, extremely few people ever get to do. In the time frame where I was coming to terms with my gender identity and, and up till and, and for about a year after the time of the Brethren knew 
that I considered myself transgender. I was making monthly presentations to the First Presidency directly in their conference room with members of the Quorum of the Twelve and Seventy and Presiding Bishopric present. I know we're going to talk about some of the temples that I had a chance to work on later, perhaps, but as I made those presentations on the designs of the temples, I was literally standing immediately next to members of the First Presidency and conversing with them. They knew me by name, and they appreciated the work that I was doing for them, and they appreciated me enough to keep me on, even though I had this this identity, so long as I remained quote-unquote temple worthy. So it was a major aspect of my life, not to mention the fact that when I went home, I was also, you know, the senior church leader in the area in which I lived. And 24-7, I was church, 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 as evidenced by all my suits and white shirts and ties. (laughs) (laughs) Um, To, you know, to I, in all sincerity, quite really, I wanted them to say, yes, we'll support your transition and keep you, you know, in your assignment here, because I really, truly love the work, and I love the people that I've worked with, and uh, the opportunity to contribute in, in such a, you know, capable, competent, professional way, you know, to the building of the kingdom, literally, you know, I was deeply into that, <laughs> and to know that that wasn't going to be able to continue was a pretty big, a pretty big um, adjustment for me. To then have the experience that no one would touch me after I left church employment and transitioned, no one in the Salt Lake area would would interview or hire me or consider um, having me involved, even though I had so much to give. That was downright shocking. <laughs> Mm-hmm. and very telling as to how powerful that community can be both for good and for harm. Absolutely. That ostracism is is really devastating. That's the part I think that is hard to convey to allies or somebody else, the feeling of ostracism once you come out, once you you are so entwined in that community and then to to be so easily cut out is is shocking. Going along with that and you had mentioned earlier that you were doing this at a really difficult and challenging point for the church. So between the 1960s and 2020, a lot has been adjusted and changed. But specifically, if people don't recall this, 2015 to 2019, we have the the policy in place and you speak directly You've written directly to the, in multiple ways, but I know to the Salt Lake Tribune, to other places about the different handbook changes as well. So I know that you track these changes pretty closely and are a good voice for telling people what those those changes actually mean. So maybe you can give us kind of a sense of what that time period looked like on the ground for you and for other folks. This is before Colette or I even came out, so... Yeah, I jokingly say I was still straight back then. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, I was truly a student of the church handbook of instructions and then the church handbook going back to my service in the church in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. And I've lost count of how many versions of the handbook I actually served under and and you know received and 
you know, threw out and destroyed the old versions and replaced them with the new versions and read through all the changes and so forth. And I considered myself quite a student of the processes and policies of the church. I had particular interest, obviously, in adjustments to the language as it touched upon both homosexual members as well, particularly and especially of transgender members. And I think part of what you were suggesting, Kate, is that over the course of time from, you know, the 80s through the 90s, and and Nathan Kitchen has written a great deal about the different generations of experiences of gay men, for example, from his perspective in each of those different decades leading up to 2015, those changes were were notable and in some cases they were they were huge and they were also difficult but there was incremental progress occurring from a very very bad place to only a pretty bad place but with regard to gender identity there really wasn't much to say there really wasn't much understanding spencer w kimball once said i won't quote him exactly but those who you know who Fiddle, obviously he didn't say fiddle, but those who fiddle with their gender will got, are going to have to answer to their maker. From that point up until the time I sat down in 2012 with an LDS family services counselor, perhaps one of your colleagues, Colette, that I had been assigned by the presiding bishop of the church to go meet with so I could work out my circumstances, he had admittedly absolutely no understanding of gender identity or gender dysphoria at all. All he could offer was some of the kind of catchphrases he had been trained on with regard to same-sex attraction. And I gave him a short lesson as to why sexual orientation and gender identity were two extremely different things and left his office crying and never went back because it was so frustrating to have so little understood when by that point in 2012, there was plenty of information to be understood on the subject. We have lots more now, but there was sufficiently that they didn't have to be so blind to the reality of gender identity. So we get up to 2015, same-sex marriage becomes available in the United States. Marriage equality becomes the law in the United States. We had just had the Utah Compromise passed with great efforts from the church, and the summer of 2015 felt like a pretty good time. November of 2015, the policy of exclusion came out, and it was that whiplash that never should have been released the way that it was and never should have occurred at all. It was that whiplash of response officially by the church, and they had to hunker down and and say, this is who we are and this is what we believe. That caused so incredibly much damage, especially to to our homosexual and, and bisexual community in the church. I remember at the time reaching out to my stake president saying, what does this mean for me and my then spouse? He knowing that I identified as female, and of course my cisgender female spouse identified as female, were we also considered a same-sex couple. He didn't know the answer to that. But something else also occurred which brought transgender members into a target and focus. The Gavin Grimm case that was moving towards the U.S. Supreme Court 2015 and 2016 with regard to 
school use of facilities according to gender identity. The church wrote an amicus brief. I say the church. The church assigned its attorneys, Curtin and McConkie, to write an amicus brief, which the church obviously signed on to because they had directed its production. And then they got other religions organizations to uh, sign on to as well that basically said that LDS belief and doctrine does not allow for self-determination of gender identity, that we are who we are based upon our assignment at birth, and that's it. And that was written particularly to protect the LDS schools from a blurring of, of male-female gender binary. At that same time, in order to make it clear to the world that the church was going to enforce that stance, they began training stake presidents all over the country to be unaccepting and unaffirming of transgender members. And suddenly, amongst my network of friends all over the country who had successfully been attending their wards authentically and, you know, attending their then third hour meetings of Relief Society and or priesthood, depending upon their identity, were all being privately told the exact same message, you can't go anymore. And stake presidents, at least in the Salt Lake area, were trained that if they had a transgender member that they were preparing to hold church disciplinary council for, they needed to coordinate that with this new committee of three General Authority 70s who were to uh, basically coordinate the response in terms of church discipline for all transgender members, in at least in the church in Utah, if not in all of the United States. That's why I said earlier that I happened to come out and go full-time at a particularly punitive time. It seemed like in 2015, 2016, 2017, there was a concerted effort to demonstrate that the church was serious about not accepting people who self-identified as something other than their birth sex. President Oaks and others gave some pretty strong talks about the fact that birth sex, birth sex, birth sex is the only thing that is, and that's who we are eternally. Well, I read the proclamation on the family very differently. It very much appropriately said to me, that gender is eternal. And it didn't say my sex was eternal. My sex is part of my physical biology that I understand had some mess ups in the process. I consider myself somewhat intersex. And for anyone who has been diagnosed as intersex, the whole birth sex argument doesn't work at all. But the reality is that during that time frame, it was it was a punitive time for transgender members. During the same week in May of 2017, both myself and a friend of mine were told the exact same words by our stake presidents, even though we live 1,500 miles apart. I was instructed, as was she, to write a letter requesting removal of my name from the records of the church or detransition immediately. And that was the exact same instruction we both received. There may have been others who received that as well. But that's how serious they were about eradicating us, either through our own initiation of resigning our membership or 
detransitioning and getting back in line and on the covenant path, if you will. My response to my stake president at that time was, President, it's not in my power emotionally, medically, or in any other way to detransition. And you know that. You know the harm it causes me to attempt to live as male. And I said, and it's not in my heart to withdraw my name from the church. Then he said, then I've been instructed to hold the disciplinary council. He had received instruction. He wasn't acting on his own. And so within a few weeks, that council took place and I was excommunicated. My friend, who was also a relatively visible member of the church in, in her area, was not excommunicated, but was disfellowshipped. I sensed that some of us were visible enough in the community and in the church in general that they needed to be very clear how they stood with us. And yet I have other friends who have similar, very similar experiences, timeframes of transitioning, even in their own ward where they formerly served in priesthood callings, where they now have continued to enjoy church membership and serve in callings as their authentic selves, remain married to their spouses, and everything is just fine. Very, very, very different responses. And yet, less than two years after my excommunication, the church handbook came out again, 2019, February of 2019, with a much softer stance towards trans members, a little bit more gray and a little bit more open to acceptance, definitely not perfect, but probably if followed in its spirit would never have excommunicated me in the first place. I remember at the end of my question and answer period that went on for 90 minutes in the, the church disciplinary council, as it was called then, I was asked the question, what do I want to have be the outcome of this meeting? And the person who asked me was an individual that I had known for many years, was a counselor in the state presidency at the time, had been my counselor as a bishop years before. And I looked at him and I said, without hesitation, I want to be able to worship God according to the dictates of my own conscience. And my conscience confirms to me that I am female. And I wish to worship God authentically as who I am. And happily, I realized about three weeks later that being excommunicated, I found that they had granted me that permission. It's the only way they could answer my question was to put me out of the church and allow me the freedom to worship God according to my own conscience and to, and to do that as my authentic self. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. It's hard to listen to, to be quite frank. It's that's, I feel for you so deeply because Excommunication really just is a horrific, traumatic, like a really traumatic process. And to have to go through that, the whole process, it's not just like a moment, it's a whole process. I don't know. I really don't have words to describe how, how heartbreaking that is to me for you. I just want to come on excommunication. I know the church doesn't use that phrase anymore, but that it does just seem so violent. And if we're looking at how Christ interacted with people, I don't see any examples of Christ excommunicating anyone. And so it really just feels like such an act of violence. And I am so sorry, Lori that you had to go through that. But at the same time, I think it is interesting. You have that perspective of like, they granted exactly what you asked for. 
you don't have the rules that you must follow now. You really can do it according to the dictates of your own conscience, just like it says in the Articles of Faith, <laughs> that you can truly do that. There aren't any restrictions or restraints that you have that relationship with God. And I know that was an important part of my journey was developing a relationship with God outside of my relationship with the church and realizing they weren't one in the same. And I think that's a journey a lot of queer individuals in the church have to go through is separating out those two. I was able to clearly feel in my heart and mind that the disciplinary council process was an institutional matter among men and that it had nothing to do with my relationship with deity. And in fact, in some ways, my relationship with deity is stronger now than it was before. My middle daughter, who served a mission and is, is a, a very obedient soul, asked me once if I had felt the loss of the Holy Ghost after I was put out of the church. And I said, absolutely not. I said, when I joined the church as a young person, I was invited to receive the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of God. And I worked for better part of 40 years to develop that relationship. And no administrative action on the part of the institution was going to damage that relationship that I had earned with deity. And I think it's such a shame when an individual's relationship with deity is so closely linked and only founded upon their relationship with the institution that they lose everything in the process of losing the institution, because I think that's a loss that doesn't have to happen in life. And for some, it may be the appropriate decision to make, but to have it be the only conclusion, the only consequence, I think is sad. Thank you so much for adding that part about the Holy Ghost. I think that is such a crucial point to be made. I'm pretty open about the fact that other people calling my stake president tried to have a church disciplinary council on my behalf and my bishop who I had a very tight relationship with and communicated everything that I was going through with stood in, in the way of that. And those moments, I was completely devastated. I remember not being able to get up off the floor at times. And those were the times that are most spiritual for me as well, that I was in complete connection with not just the Holy Ghost, but what I feel to be a Jesus Christ, a Jesus Christ with me, holding me, knowing what I was going through. So if we're, if we're talking about a Christ that understands us and our pain and the same Christ that isn't the New Testament Christ, he's there in those moments. It, at least that was my experience and how I, I, I felt about the whole process. So thank you for um, bringing up that point. You mentioned your good bishop that stood in the way and stood with you just to show how messed up things were in 2017, my good bishop tried to do the same and for months fought to support me and to make me welcome and to pr protect me from the punitive nature that was befalling us. He was released the day I was excommunicated early because of his support for me. I'm so glad you had his support and I hate that the institution felt like they had to come down with to come down on him because of that. 
you know, we talked quite a bit about leadership roulette, and it sounds like you both had some great ecclesiastical leaders and some not so great, and but all of them are part of this greater institution that how much do they actually have control over? It's really interesting. You mentioned the handbook changes back. I think it was February of 2020, if I'm remembering right, because I was actually invited last minute to come to a meeting. I was working for a CES school and they were having an LDS family services meeting for all the full-time counselors. The meeting was in Salt Lake. All the full-time family services counselors came and then they invited counselors from CES institutions as well last minute. And the first day was great. They provided a great training about a certain type of modality that was really helpful. And then the second day, it was focused on queer individuals. And it was funny, I had just come out to one of my colleagues who was also at this meeting. We had gone to grad school together and I was sitting by him and I realized what they started talking about. And I was like, I can't deal. So I was very grateful that he didn't judge me as I just played on my phone for hours as they started talking about these are the handbook changes that will be rolling out in the next month. This is what you need to be prepared for. This is the church's stance. And it was softer in some ways, but it, my heart just cried out how wrong it was on how black and white it was on how many people were going to continue to be hurt. But because my livelihood, my identity was still tied up in this, I didn't feel like I could stand up and leave. I could not advocate for myself and the vulnerable people I worked with in that situation. And I'm just so sorry that you and so many others have gotten caught in those crosshairs that even as the church is softening in some ways, it's becoming more black and white in others. And it's devastating and heartbreaking to see because the spirit testifies to me that it's wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And I've reflected many times that the purpose of putting me out of the institution was to disassociate themselves from from me and in some way silence my voice. And, and yet we know that our voices become stronger. It's the old Obi-Wan Kenobi to Darth Vader. If you kill me, I'm only going to become more powerful. We deserve and we have a right and a responsibility to tell these stories and to speak them clearly and with love for our community and the knowledge of the ones who are harmed and injured along the way. I think that talking about the 2020 change, because there's the 2019 change and then the 2020 change, I would like to go back to that and kind of incorporate another aspect. And that is that, Laura Lee, you were working as Affirmations Vice President with Nathan Kitchen, who was the president. And I think the two of you together (laughs) working through your opinion pieces for the Tribune were just dynamite because especially for 2020, the 2020 change of the handbook, because Nathan is outlining, here's what's going on for the LGB parts of the queer community. And then you were able to outline, here's what's going on for the T part, because so often we're just lumped together as queer. And to have the both of you be able to explain, this is how this impacts this part of the group, and this is how this impacts the other part. Can you talk about how, maybe also how you've worked for Affirmation, but also how you deal with being part of a larger queer community with separate issues. It was a a great experience to be in various leadership roles in affirmation. I love their mission. I love the fact that they are queer-led. And as a queer-led 
support system for queer folks at that intersection of queer and current or former LDS experience. I was originally brought into affirmation to serve on the board in part because I understood how to run large organizations on a worldwide basis and affirmation was feeling its growing pains. You know, how do we how do we work with folks that are in Eastern Europe, for example? <laughs> and, and you know, this is side note, kind of a nice thing. The church is really good about creating leaders and giving you these skills to be able to then take and build elsewhere. I love it. Yeah, exactly. I'd obviously had all of the unpaid ecclesiastic experience that I could have possibly gained, but also in my various roles in the physical facilities organizations of the church had literally been on every continent with members of the church and all of the places where Latter-day Saints were and had run large programs in both Meeting House and and Temple and other buildings worldwide and kind of knew the lay of the land and how to communicate with folks and what their different issues were and so forth. And also had had some experience in putting together processes and, and policies and all of that to help run that organization at the headquarters level. And I kind of came into Affirmation to help them overcome their growing pains to become a worldwide organization and to be the more professional, well-built, well-structured organization that they are now to go forward and serve people in in every part of the world where queer Latter-day Saints exist. But I also came into an affirmation that had very little experience with gender identity. It had been for so many years really for gay men and had begun becoming more sensitive and aware of the needs of gay women and bisexual persons had not had too many experiences with transgender issues. And that really reflects what was still going on in society anyway. I talk about the fact that when I came out as trans in 2012, I came out before trans was cool. You know, it's really been in the last five to seven years that transgender and gender identity and gender nonconformance is a part of, you know, the social, national, international discussion. And so everybody's coming up to speed more on these issues and we're able to come out more safely and, and move around more effectively in any circumstances because It's so much better in 2021 than it was in 2015 in terms of understanding and acceptance and appreciation. But I found myself in that early circumstance in affirmation as needing to be that voice for the gender identity community. And I felt that very powerfully. And fortunately, I found in Nathan and others in leadership of affirmation, particularly Nathan, a great opportunity to, you know, to mesh together, to be yin and yang, as you described on LGB versus TQIA, (laughs) you know, one or the other, but how do we represent both and all? Because in reality, I think that none of us as people exist as orientation only without identity or exist as identity only without orientation. We're all some meshing both issues, identity or orientation. I know that I had to sort out my identity and really become accepting of it before I could explain my orientation. 
because the two were kind of connected. If you use society's definition of orientation, it starts with who am I and then who am I attracted to? And, and the two are inextricably linked. But to be able to make sure that everything we spoke to was from the perspective of as broad a community, as broad a tent as possible, was critical for us. And I just cherish the times that Nathan and I were able to get together and write things that made a difference and were inclusive and broad enough to, I think, hit many, many of the key points. And again, to use that responsibility to have a voice to say the things that were deep in both of our hearts. Absolutely. That made an impact on me. I was coming out and coming out again during all of that time. And I was reading, I could not get enough of what you all were publishing and writing. And it meant a lot to me. So it changed people's lives. It changed my life. So thank you. I just appreciate you being able to speak out. I've had multiple people tell me like, why, why are so many more people coming out? Why is it so popular now? And I think you kind of briefly brought up the idea. It's not that it's suddenly popular, that there's suddenly more queer people. It's that it's safer. And people like you who are speaking out are making it safer for people to be able to come out. So thank you, Lori Lee. It certainly did not feel safe back then. There were things that felt very not safe. I described that for 40 years of my life, I struggled with gender dysphoria. But then when I started coming out, I started enjoying gender euphoria, but started struggling with social dysphoria. And by social dysphoria, I mean the dealing with the anguish of how those around me were not accepting or were accepting. What I was telling them was my truth. I went from experiencing serious self-harm issues over my dis gender dysphoria to then experiencing serious self-harm issues with regard to social dysphoria, while at the same time I was feeling great about who I was becoming. <laughs> and I, I realized how important it is that we have social support systems so that we can kind of temper the messages that we receive sometimes from family, friends, co-workers, colleagues, people in the community whatsoever who haven't come up to speed yet with the fact that this is reality of who we are and this is authenticity and this is how it looks. And the amount of harm that can be caused by people who say, I love you, but... Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned having the language early on in this interview. You mentioned learning to start to have the language and learning the language of gender dysphoria. And by 2012, you're meeting with an ecclesiastical leader who doesn't have any of that language and assumes that queerness is all the same and it's all gay. Can you talk about how you've really tried to pull those things apart and how you've done that and are people more up to date on the term gender dysphoria and gender euphoria and those sorts of things within the church, do you think? I have to assume that yes, that the basic answer to your question is yes, that there's more understanding now than the abysmal zero that there was, <laughs> you know, nine years ago. Because I can't imagine that there hasn't been some improvement in the last four years, five years. I really don't have any experiences in terms of interviewing or discussing this with church leaders officially, obviously, they've stopped talking to me. But I know that there's seems to be, at least at the local church level, 
where I live here, a much more sense of just basic respect and acceptance even though there may not be full understanding. For me, back in 2012, when I faced down some 11 interviews within a very short period of time with senior church leaders, the only thing I could do in those interviews beyond saying this is who I am was to simply bear my testimony that I knew who I was and I knew that God knew who I was. And they couldn't refute that. I sensed there may be a little more understanding these days, but whenever there's conversations at the senior pulpit level of it's birth, sex, and nothing else, indicates to me that there's still a harmful, terribly harmful misunderstanding at the top of what all of this means as far as gender. Absolutely. I just want to briefly give a story about my coming out because Lorley was a very integral part of my coming out as non-binary because I felt like I needed permission. And I also felt like I wasn't trans enough is what I hear often people say now. And I felt like that myself, like, am I enough of this to be able to come out? And we had an affirmation event in LA, but it was via Zoom during the pandemic. And Lori Lee joined us because we felt like as an affirmation in LA, we weren't addressing trans issues as often as we could. So we had this meeting and it ended up being just a few people. And I got to have this really unique, awesome one-on-one time to really work out and sort out my own gender identity. And you gave me permission to be like, yes, I can start to piece out what my gender identity is and looks like and feel safe doing that. So thank you for that. But maybe you can talk to some of our audience members who are at that junction and having a hard time. So I'm glad we had that experience. I'm glad for every chance that I've had to talk to people and share our stories because that makes such a difference in people's lives. I had a really neat experience recently that may help to answer this very question. I got a Facebook Messenger message from a young person that I recognized their name as having been a a little primary kid that lived three doors up from where I raised my children. And that person said, "I'm, I'm now a high school senior, and I'm the president of the Gay Straight Alliance at our high school, same high school that all my kids went to. And they said, I've come out to my parents as gender non-binary and non-conforming and as queer. And that hasn't gone too well, but we're all okay. But they went on to talk about, as a child, having watched me as their church leader, then get up and basically come out in a fast and testimony meeting when they were about 12 and then go through transition and then eventually get put out and having to move away as giving them the courage ultimately to to stand up for themselves once they came somewhat of age and had the courage to do so. And would I join a Zoom meeting for the high school's gay straight alliance and talk to them 
And I said, absolutely. I'd, I'd love to go back to the high school virtually and have this conversation. Well, to my astonishment, the classroom, that was a large classroom, was absolutely chock full. Every desk was taken and there were kids sitting on lab counters and all, all around the room. There must have been over 50 young people in the room all looking at some little screen to see me calling in from Kentucky. And my impressions, I gave my, you know, my short story and so forth, but my impressions were to talk to them about hope and the great opportunities that lie before them to live authentically and to be safe and out and well and productive and effective as queer people in the larger society, recognizing these kids all were growing up in conservative Utah in a relatively conservative county. And many of the young people in the room said, my parents don't even know about me. And they would be shocked to find out that I'm in this room today and in this club. I just felt overwhelmingly the sense of hope for really great, productive, happy lives going forward. And I think the message really kind of caught them with surprise because I think at the point that many of them were at, it was feeling pretty rough. And I said, listen, I've made it and a lot of other people have made it and look to us as examples of people who can make it. But you're in such a better situation because you have all of your life decisions ahead of you still and all the great opportunities to form your life as, as your authentic self without experiencing the kind of barriers or in my case, I created a prison cell for myself that I could barely get out of to be myself. You get to be yourselves going forward and go be your best selves and just be great at it. That felt really, really good to have that conversation with them and say, you can do this and you have each other and you have whoever will support you and love you going forward and you have every reason to hope. Such an important message. Thank you so much. I know I needed to hear that. I think we all need to hear that. It's a scary and oftentimes lonely journey. And it's so beautiful and helpful and wonderful to see people who are a little farther along on the path that can give that encouragement that it does get better. So thank you so much for that. If I can just head in a, a little bit of a different direction based on something you had talked about earlier as well about your privilege and the struggle of recognizing all of that privilege. That is, it's hard to come to terms with, but also this podcast specifically hopes to get to people, women, gender, queer people, intersex people who face a certain sort of misogyny within the church. And for trans women, there is a certain type of misogyny that especially that takes place. Can you talk about that a little bit for us to help us understand that? Yeah, it's, uh, good gosh, it's real. I worked and served in the highest levels of the patriarchy. And for years, I kind of undercover stealthily worked to benefit the women that I associated with feeling definitely a kinship with them. When I became uh, responsible for the entire cadre of interior designers that worked on temples. There were three men and perhaps seven or eight women interior designers. And the disparity between their grade levels and their pay scales 
was appalling. And over a period of time, I worked to help those women get the qualifications and certifications that some of them needed and to get them all grade level equal with their male counterparts. And some of them experienced substantial pay increases to catch up to where the men were. And that felt very satisfying to me to kind of break down what was clearly gender bias in the way these folks had been hired and the way they were pigeonholed into their assignments. When I left church employment, one of those women was managing the entire group where for the first time there was a woman in charge of uh, all the interior designers for temples. And she was very capable, very professional, but also was being held down by the system. Similarly, in church councils, I have too many stories where I'm aware of either ward or state council where the the women leaders of the organizations of the auxiliaries were told to sit on the perimeter of the room and to take notes while the men discussed the business and affairs of the unit, literally not being able to sit at the table. And I witnessed that firsthand as a young person and had an enormous difficulty with it. And so I made certain that not only were the women at the table, but they were by my side and that they had opportunity to first speak and that we listened to their counsel. And I did everything I could to empower them in those meetings to the point where they were at first confused by what was going on because they'd never experienced it before. It made our units much better than they were. Now, once I came out and all these other things happened, I did some podcasts, one particular one with Gina Colvin that I recall where it was just a joy to the women in in that podcast and some of their listeners that there had ever been a woman who held the keys of presiding over a state (laughs) (laughs) or a ward. Some of them have said I was probably the the most powerful woman in the church. I don't know if that's true or not, (laughs) but it, it feels good. I had a therapist once tell me that the reason that the first presidency appreciated my design work and presentations so much was because I was a woman. I don't know if that's the case, but it feels really good to have done those things, knowing at least inside myself who I was. Now, the most unbelievable thing to a Mormon high priest is why another Mormon high priest would want to be a woman. And they look at me awestruck, or used to anyway, is why would you ever want to put yourself into that position? You have everything as a Mormon high priest. Why would you ever want to be a sister? You know, and you could see the disdain in their voices as they say, why a sister? Why? (laughs) I dramatize that because it, it feels that way. It feels like why... They, men just can't understand why you would ever leave the club. And so for trans women in the LDS experience, I think we all ex- have, have seen that. It's like, why would you ever do that? I'm at a loss for words <laughs> as to what to say in response to that. I was never really a part of that club. <laughs> I, I, was, I was undercover <laughs> learning all your secrets. <laughs> 
<laughs> I was secretly sabotaging everything you were trying to do. I don't know. It just, there's such an enormous difference in my mind between how generally women in the church accept me versus how men in the church don't accept me. And I mean, it's, it couldn't be more palatable. Even conservative sisters who don't necessarily understand or appreciate gender will accept me as a sister. And men continue to trip over as to what's going on here. Why would this ever happen? It seems threatening to them. It is. It's, it's a threat to masculinity more broadly in, in terms, this is why trans women are so vulnerable within the queer community that trans women are so vulnerable because of that threat to masculinity. It's very real in the LDS church as well. It, It really is not so much that anyone actually says it, but you can feel it in everything. And yeah, I mean, it's just a reality, I guess, of the genders. I know I got off that team, and I'm glad I'm not on that team anymore. <laughs> I like that you said you're undercover, though, because that's what it is, and that those women who've interviewed you and are in your congregations have affirmed that you are a woman. And I appreciate that that's your queer joy for this week, too, is that mm-hmm. you've always been this person. You've just, you've been undercover as a man sometimes. I think that's a good way, Kate, to even posture it is the fact that I wasn't a man who decided to become a woman. Mm-hmm. I was a woman who 50 years out of necessity had to present as a man. Absolutely. Yeah. I wonder if we can end on a note of more hope. Talk about sort of the projects that you're doing in Kentucky, maybe where you're headed, what direction you're headed, and what you're thinking about going forward. Yeah, I in Utah, when I f- first found myself apart from the working worlds of the church and realized that I wasn't going to be hired by anyone that I had ever worked with back there, I started my own little practice. And it didn't get off the ground, quite frankly, in Utah. And I had the opportunity to, well, I should mention somewhere along the way here that, and this won't be a hopeful part, but it has a hopeful ending. Former spouse was doing okay with my transition up until the time I was excommunicated. And the church leaders made it clear that I was not acceptable. And then suddenly I couldn't be acceptable to her any longer either. And so uh, we separated and eventually divorced. But I was able to find someone new that loves and accepts me exactly for who I am, who also happens to be LDS. And I moved here to Kentucky to begin and to allow that relationship to flourish. And so I can honestly say I'm with someone now that totally loves me for exactly who I am, who goes to bat for me when anybody ever wants to mistreat me, which doesn't happen all that often. And that part of my life has totally been turned happy again. So in coming here, I truly didn't know what to expect coming into a new community if I would have the opportunity to do anything professionally. But suddenly things started clicking and people figured out who I was and what I had done in the past and didn't care about aspects of my history and both church members and non-church members and people from the community like the county I told you about earlier started 
giving me little projects and then bigger projects. And I got calls from clients back in Utah that for whatever reason, weren't ready to do their thing back then, but are now. And so I've got big projects in Utah as well that I'm doing here and I'm doing there. And I'm licensed in both places. And I picked up my real estate license here in Kentucky as well when I thought I wouldn't be an architect anymore. And I'm having fun with that as well. And just, um, just happy to be able to contribute in my craft as my authentic self, which thing I never thought I'd get a chance to do. Yeah, that's so awesome. But also just one more note, because I have to bring this up. Your legacy will exist for a long time for a lot of different reasons. One of those legacies is the temples that you've created and designed and uh, built. So I'm in Romania currently. My old temple in Romania was Kiev in Ukraine, which you designed. (laughs) And the new temple for Romania, as soon as they built it, became the Romanian temple. That is the Rome temple, which you also designed. (laughs) And the Rome temple, both those temples have a lot of meaning for me. I was able to go through the Kiev temple, do an endowment session there. And the Rome temple has a lot of significance and meaning for me and being here and, and all of those things. So your legacy permeates even within the LDS community. I think that that is just remarkable. It's very like a foundation, like you are a part of this and a part of a significant part of the LDS faith. And that is the temple and the Rome temple in particular was such an important one that is is your temple or your design, however you want to think about it. I don't know how you think about those things, but in my mind, I think of this as as one of your temples, and it it shares that much more meaning. Thanks. It it should be clear that no one person designs a whole temple, but at the end of the day, when all the design work was pulled together and polished up and ready to present to the first presidency. It was my responsibility to stand in front of them and say, brethren, this is what we think we should be doing in this location or in this location. And for any architect, no matter where they come from in the world, to build a new construction in the eternal city, that's a daunting thing to do. And I think we did a very credible job of building a monumentally beautiful facility, which also serves as a temple. in Rome and and just great thing to be a part of when it happened at that time. It was a great time of temple building in which the first presidency was very interested in doing some some big and creative things with temples and was happy to be there at that time. I've often said that I feel a little bit like Moses in the Ten Commandments movie where when he got on Pharaoh's bad side, Pharaoh said, let the name of Moses be struck from every building and every obelisk and so forth in Egypt. And I often feel like they tried to do the same with me. Let my name be struck from every temple and every meeting house and so forth in the church. But thankfully, the queer community remembers that I was there and I did those things and I worked in the in that way. The day will come when, hopefully... Lots of queer people can be doing those kinds of things. 
Well, and if I remember properly, you also were a big part of the Provo City Center temple becoming a temple. Is that correct? It is. In fact, when it burned down, I led the team that looked very carefully at seeing if there was enough building left to put back together with the idea that it was going to be a, a replacement tabernacle. It was going to go back to its former self with, you know, with updates to systems and so forth. But I was on vacation in June of 2011 when I got a call from a representative of the presiding bishopric that said, you can't tell anybody, but is it possible that that building could be a temple? And so I spent the rest of my vacation at my little desk in my home, kind of sketching out how the ordinance rooms would fit within the body of that building and how that could be done. It wasn't simple. It was, it was a complicated thing to do, but the results were amazing absolutely extraordinary. And that was a project that I assigned myself personally to. So I had more of a hand in that than anything else temple-wise that ever happened. So I love that. I love that temple. I love that building. And I love the symbolism of it. I feel like a lot of times in religion, we're so black and white and throwing things away when they don't work for us anymore. And I love the symbolism of being able to rebuild from the ashes into something even more sacred and beautiful. I feel like that is such a symbolism of my life (laughs) and many queer people's lives. And so I love that this was your design and your project that you assigned yourself, because I think I know many times in my life, I have felt like it's just not possible. My life is in ruins. There's no way to redeem it. I need to throw it away. And then to see this temple rise from the ashes of a former tabernacle is just what I strive for my life to be, that it was in ruins at times. I didn't see like how it was possible for me to go on. But my life is so much more beautiful and whole and amazing than I could have imagined when I was just a tabernacle, if that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> it, it does. And I've given more than a few talks on this subject using the Portable City Center Temple and the particular fact that the timing of its fire and then redesign and, and rebuilding completely coincided with my own investigation of my situation, the burning down of my life and rebuilding it again. Probably the the best version of that talk I gave in May of 2019 at Affirmation Spring Conference in Mesa, Arizona. And that's still available on YouTube for anybody that wants a a two hour version of that story, complete with photographs and all my thoughts about how those two events paralleled each other, you know, by by day, we were completely rethinking how to make this building a temple and turning it into a temple. And by night, I was changing myself for a higher purpose and a more authentic life as well. And it, in 10,000 lifetimes, I couldn't have imagined a more parallel experience taking place symbolically between the building and myself. And it is a great metaphor for all of us who sometimes have a lot to let go of and things that we wouldn't necessarily want to let go of in order to become our true selves. But as you've said, Colette, the opportunity to live authentically and to be our true selves releases us 
to contribute so much more to the world than when we were closeted or trapped within our own foibles, our own, our own fears of letting ourselves be seen or appreciated for who we really are. Thank you so much. We're going to have to look up that video and put it in our show notes or on our website so that others can go listen uh, to that because it sounds so powerful. Thank you. Yeah, I want to come back to the this idea that you'd said earlier about your daughter asking whether you still have the Holy Ghost. I am a believing member. There are going to be people on that are listening to this who are in way different faith journeys, who are not believers and whatnot. But I think that we can offer a plurality of experiences and say that I feel what I assign to the Holy Ghost when I'm listening to you speak about these things. And I feel spiritually connected to this space and to you. And I feel what I consider to be the spirit. And you can call that whatever you want to call that. But for me, it's the spirit. And you mentioned you said this just kind of off the cuff that there's there can be a chance for us to be welcomed in these temples again. And I have had that confirmation to me. I've had that personal revelation within the temple. I knew that that was going to be a place that I was going to be able to go back to with a wife. And I feel that I don't really talk about that, but I think that this space and this spiritual moment, what I feel as you're talking is worth highlighting that this is this is a work going forward and there is a spirit about it whatever you want to call it so thank you for bringing that here with us thank you for this time I know we've all been a little bit emotional throughout this whole thing because it's been yeah it's a lot of difficult topics but also we all feel for one another and I appreciate that community that we're building here thank you Lori Lee so glad to be here with you both what a fantastic way for me to spend a Sunday. This was this was my church today. Thanks for listening. We appreciate you joining us today. Please feel free to follow, rate, and review. If you want to contact us, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Called to Queer. See you next time. Mm-hmm.